This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm Ros Taylor. Coming up in today's edition, the Church of England has got involved in the row over sending migrants to Rwanda. We look at the details of the plan, Britain's decidedly ambivalent attitude to refugees, and what theology can bring to this debate, if anything. Plus, Johnson is very sorry for breaking the law, but he didn't realise he was doing anything wrong. How long can that defence hold, and will the public punish him in May? And as the cost of living crisis bites, which streaming services will be the first to go? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, you can keep us going by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the show's early, ad-free and exclusive merchandise when you back us for as little as £2 per month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. There's a link in the show notes too. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to commentator, actor and cook Alex Andreu. Hello. Welcome back to The Bunker. Thank you. After celebrating Easter his own way over the weekend, more on that later, the Minister for Presenteeism, sorry, Minister for Government Efficiency, Jacob Rees-Mogg, <laughs> has ordered civil servants to get back into the office. He says too many are working from home. Why does he think this is so important to the public? Yes, so the the haunted pencil has apparently written to um, all departments asking them to press employees to get back to nine to five at their desk. Um, Sir Graham Brady chipped in with, it is simply unacceptable for so many of our public servants to continue sitting at home, which implies they're not doing anything. Um, what, what's interesting about this, I thought, is the reasoning they gave. So Rhys Mogg wrote that departments must, and I quote, ensure we are making efficient use of the central London estate. And number 10 confirmed that departments end I quote, should have maximum use of office space and progress is being monitored. (laughs) So there's no criticism of productivity or efficiency. In fact, the Institute for Government published a a study a couple of months ago saying this could be a, a great boon for Whitehall because it would allow the government to cut costs, it would improve retention of people, they could hire further afield, and they could start to move departments out of London, which is the their stated aim. Um, but no, the the approach seems to be, we have the office space, we need to fill it. <laughs> but the fascinating thing is, they don't even really have the office space. I mean, my fiance is a civil servant, and she was working at home today because the department that she works for has three times more employees than I know, they have they're desks. hot-desking, aren't they? <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, but what I think is interesting is that this is the man who's tasked with finding Brexit opportunities. So on the one hand, we have this rhetoric of Brexit opportunities that are all you know, a a modern, lithe, flexible UK that will make most of fintech and AI. And on the other hand, we have this 
Elizabethan popinjay complaining that he doesn't see enough children up chimneys. <laughs> well, this is the thing that surprises me in a way because it's actually a very anti-motherhood policy this and you'd think that Jacob Rees-Mogg of all people with all his many children would be would be keen on this it, it makes it much more difficult for women to work when they can't do the school runs it can, very simply it's it you know you lose a huge amount of, of time out of your day trying to get to school and back and when you add on that commute it basically becomes impossible to work for a portion of the day it's a massive win-win for government I, I really don't get it I, I mean the only thing I can imagine is that ministers must feel less powerful when they walk through the open plan and, you know, there's not loads of people in tiny little booths there sort of, you know, scratching away at the books looking for tax shelters. Like Scrooge's Clark. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ahir, sorry. Also joining us, we have comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Ahir, welcome to the bunker. Hello. You have just become an uncle for the first time, is that right? I have. It's been very exciting. That's happened since my last appearance uh, on The Bunker, and I've been spending as much time as possible with my sister and brother-in-law and the wonderful little Raffi, uh, who is uh, the smallest and cutest and loudest and smelliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, so that's been that's been wonderful. Uh, but it's it, it's been another thing that you know I, I was I've, I've never seen something so small that required so much ancillary gear just around <laughs> <laughs> around the place like this guy's got a lot of accessories you know uh, and I was talking to my brother-in-law uh, about this the other day when um, he was just saying like no element of this is cheap and that's the line that's really gonna uh, stick with me throughout it and at a time when you've got I mean the ever-increasing pressures of housing, the fact that energy bills are going up tremendously, the fact that conversations that I have with people, particularly in their early 20s, are now everyone's understandably pranging out about the interest rates that are going to be applied to student loans. And then you think you sort of get all that and then you get to the position where you're starting a family. And it's at all of these points in your life where you're doing these spectacularly capital intensive things uh, and everything around <laughs> just seems to be conspiring against you. It, it's baffling to me the extent that we don't support uh, young people who are doing everything that we say that they should be. Uh, yeah. right? I mean, I'm just wait till, you know, the childcare kicks in because mm. so if I'd had any idea how much that would cost when the, my, uh, my first child was born, <laughs> believe me, the kid would have been sleeping on a blanket. I mean, there would have been no cot, no bouncy chair, none of that rubbish, no. Uh, so don't, don't let your, uh, don't let them spend too much money on that is my advice. Right, our special guest today is comedy writer Jason Hazley. Hello, Jason. Hello, folks. Um, I'm sorry to be joining you remotely, but uh, your producer forgot to invite me to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're very sorry about that. Next time. I'm, make, I'm making the most of my maverick status here. <laughs> <laughs> your work includes a series of parody Ladybird books and scripts for That Mitchell and Webb Look, Charlie Brooker's Screen Wipe and the Paddington Films. There's a lot failing in this country at the moment, but you were particularly exercised this week about the state of Oxford Street. What's wrong with a bit of tat? I walked up Oxford Street last week and uh, I've lived in London for, I think, about 30 years. And I don't think it's ever looked worse. Um, it looks like basically London's spinal column has had some kind of catastrophic injury. Um, it's a mess of new builds of varying quality boarded up places and then these tawdry little shit shops of which used to be kind of people saying come and get a bunch of you don't know what it is in a bag but it's only 30 pounds it might be a, a nice deodorant in there or something and now it's um 
And now it's these sweet shops, which are selling overpriced, apparently out of date um, American candy. Um, a private eye did a, have been running a series of uh, pieces about them, and they are basically just the work of one person who has a string of company liquidations behind him. He sets up a company, he sells this stuff, he runs up enormous debts, and then he liquidates it. For years, the government has been trying to work out how to stop migrants from crossing the channel in boats or hidden in the back of trucks. More than 28,000 made the journey in small boats last year. Some, of course, didn't make it. Now Pretty Patel believes she's found a deterrent to fly all the men who arrived to Rwanda, which has agreed to put them up until their asylum claims are processed. Note that the men will not be allowed to seek asylum in Britain. It will be up to Rwanda to accept them or not. Alex, Pretty Patel thinks this will stop them setting off in the first place. But Matthew Rycroft, the permanent secretary at the Home Office, warned her that it wouldn't. Has anything like this been tried before? Um, actually, no. Um, there have been a handful of cases of offshoring the asylum process, as it's called. So Australia started placing asylum seekers in detention centre centres on Nauru and Manus Island in 2001, then they stopped in 2007, restarted in 2014. It has seen uh, a, a few thousand placed in detention camps at the cost of 12 billion over eight years. Importantly, up to three quarters of asylum seekers being he- held in Australia's offshore camps were, were ultimately determined to be refugees. The Open Society Policy Institute has looked at the Australian scheme and found it has had zero effect on overall flows. So, I mean, it it fails at sort of every test. But I say there hasn't been a scheme like this one because even in those offshoring schemes, they're still processing their application for asylum in Australia. They're not processing, you know, they're not farming them off to Nauru and say you can apply for asylum in Nauru, which is what this scheme does. This scheme takes people wanting to apply for asylum in Britain and says, no, you can apply for asylum in Rwanda to Rwanda. So nothing like this has been done before. Why Rwanda? Other countries refused <laughs> refused this glorious opportunity, didn't they? But why why did Rwanda go for it? So Rwanda did a similar deal with with Israel between 2014 and 2017, um, and it resulted in 98% of the 4,000 people sent to Rwanda just leaving straight away and trying to make their way back to where they were headed in the first place. Denmark signed a, a similar deal with Rwanda last year, and and uh, as far as I can see, they haven't sent a single... They haven't relocated a single asylum seeker. So why not? It's free money <laughs> for Rwanda. <laughs> They're like, yeah, sure. If you want a virtue signal to your... Or rather, the opposite of virtue signaling, vice signal mm. to your um, voters that you're tough on refugees and pay us a few billion for the for the privilege, go for it. So Rwanda does not really want to accept these refugees, and most of them are from the Middle East. So it's a bad fit culturally, Rwanda, in any case. Is the country just planning to pocket the fee the UK provides 
and reject the applications and fly them back to their home countries? Or I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think all of it is performative. I think it's a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> you know, we're not going to send anyone. You're not going to give asylum to anyone. It's just so we can calm down the racists in our country, basically. You know, people become asylum seekers for all sorts of reasons. So, you know, there are people, there are teens fleeing the Taliban because they're LGBT plus. I mean, just imagine crossing a continent as an LGBT teen, coming to this country and being told, oh, you kind of look over 18, so we're going to send you to that beacon of LGBT freedoms, Rwanda. Um it's, yeah, it's not a good look, is it? No. I hear the Archbishop of Canterbury waded in on Easter Sunday. Mm. He said the plan couldn't stand the judgment of God. And the Church of England and the Conservative Party used to have a special relationship. Is that is that changing? <laughs> well, I think what's uh, interesting is that the sort of shape and face of religiosity in Britain is changing and has changed quite drastically uh, even over the last few decades, right? And we... Think about the Church of England and the Conservative Party perhaps having some sort of relationship because we think that the Church of England is sort of like jam and cream scones on some village somewhere. I I never leave London. I don't know why I'm claiming to know what (laughs) happens in villages. Um, But first of all, there was a fascinating piece that I read over the weekend, which was drawing attention to the fact that London is by quite a considerable margin the most heavily religious part of the country. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, members of ethnic minorities are considerably uh, more religious than uh, the white British uh, population, everything. So if the Church and the Conservative Party are having uh, their relationship sort of changed, I think it's because the more religious elements of uh, the the society in contemporary Britain might actually demographically be more likely to be Labour voters uh, now. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, I'm, I'm sorry to bring bring him up again. <laughs> we, won't, we won't try not to do it again. You should be. And, and then he intervened and he backed Johnson naturally. He's not C of E. He's a Catholic, like Johnson, as it happens. He said the Randa plan was an almost Easter story of redemption. Tell us about the <laughs> theological reasoning here. Well, you know, I, I, I am not a Christian other than the inevitable Christianity that seeped into me through socialization in this country uh, from the moment of birth. So I don't know if I have exactly the academic theological uh, background to critique Mr. Rees-Mogg on that. I think that what the, what the fundamental reasoning is, is what perhaps the most useful thing that religion has provided in the thousands and thousands of years of human religion existing, which is providing a justification for that thing you wanted to do anyway, right? I think that uh, Mr. Rees-Mogg thinks that shipping people to Rwanda would be a jolly good idea. And consequently, of course, there is nothing in the slightest uh, in the Bible that could possibly uh, suggest any different. Well, it certainly wasn't something that came up in my C of E primary. <laughs> <laughs> when, but when religious leaders of any stripe get involved in politics, I mean, should should we listen? I think that that's an interesting question because it very much depends on the sort of country that A, you are and B, that you want to be. 
Right. So with a country like the United States, for example, which has far more sort of public religiosity than we have in this country, but is explicitly founded on a secular basis, the whole idea would be, well, in that instance, if I don't know, the, the Pope would have some comment on what's going on in the United States. They would say, well, no, we have a strict separation of church and state, and that's got no business uh, getting involved uh, in this. The idea of, uh, you know, an archbishop of the Church of England not getting involved in politics in a country where you have bishops sitting in the House of Lords, you have an officially established church, you have a monarch who, whether we like it or not, is the monarch who we are subjects of and is defender of the faith and everything. Religion is already already heavily politicized and politics is in some ways religiousized or how, how would you say and so these things are intertwined. And so I don't think it's legitimate to be like, oh, well, what What do you know? You're an archbishop. Stay in your lane and stop, quote unquote, virtue signaling <laughs> as though that weren't the only job of an archbishop. Stop sermonizing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is worth then asking, well, do we want to live in a society in which religious leaders have a political function? Because currently, as it stands, we do. Jason, this comes as Britons are being urged to welcome refugees into their homes, providing that they're Ukrainian and you can get through the complicated bureaucracy required to let one into your home. What do you make of these mixed messages? Well, I think we can all see what's going on here, can't we? Mixed is an interesting word because it doesn't obviously apply to the skin colour of the refugees. My partner is involved with a refugee charity locally and they've helped welcome a couple of Afghan families to the area but a lot of the work has been done on WhatsApp groups because the basically because the overall infrastructure is rubbish the government is very slow to inform the local council of what they can and can't do the local council is understaffed on the number of people who are working on getting refugees into housing there was a there was an instance of a family, mum, dad, and kids uh, who came here. The dad was uh, a translator in Afghanistan for the army, and they came here in August last year. They spent six months, um, the seven of them, I think it is, in a, in one hotel room in Leicester. Then they came to London, but they were put somewhere with no other Afghans around them, which means that you can't. It's this is slightly. A slightly difficult concept to get your head around, but if you want to integrate, you have to have people with whom you can integrate, right? So if you're the only Afghan family there, it's like being a, an audience of one when the person on stage says, "Come on, join in," but you, you're not going to do it, you know, because you're because you're alone. So you need that kind of um, support network. They didn't have them. Eventually, they were put somewhere where there were other Afghans. But it then took six weeks to get the kids into a school place, meaning that the dad, who was the one English speaker who's desperate to work, couldn't do any work. And it's like the entire system is just is just not functional. It, it, everything is too slow. Everything's too difficult. And like my local council has six homes currently ready to uh, to resettle Afghan families, but they're all empty because the infrastructure won't get the people into the homes quickly enough. So they're sitting in hotels somewhere. One of the things I wonder is whether the experience of helping these refugees will bring home the cruelty of the way we treat refugees to a lot of people who haven't experienced it first-hand, second-hand, or even third-hand before, and mm. whether that will be a lasting legacy of this. Mm. 
It's, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see. But when you were working on the Paddington scripts, were you very conscious that Paddington is a refugee? Because it's something that comes through quite strongly in the film. Yeah, it, it's it's it was absolutely front and center. Um, I should say I'm not. I'm not listed on the writing card of the film because I was part of what was called the Brains Trust that did the very significant rewrites when it was clear that the film wasn't quite ready for release. But there were about 10 of us. But what, but yes, one of the things that we, one of the biggest changes we made to the script is that the this is the first film. Nicole Kidman was the baddie. And the baddie in this kid's film was a dead-eyed, beautiful scientist who wanted to kill the bear, um, eviscerate it and stuff it and it was generally agreed that that was quite a difficult concept for kids to get their head around <laughs> as a baddie, not to mention utterly grotesque. So it was decided to retilt the film along with some reshoots to say that the real baddie should be, this is, this is basically the story of an outsider who needs a home. So the real baddie should be, what if he's got nowhere and he's got no one? because that plugs straight into separation anxiety, which is one of the first and most fundamental fears that any child has. Like, I've got nobody. So it was decided to to tilt the film in that direction. And I should say also, this was all being done, uh, this was done in uh, spring of 2014, which was right on the slick. The whole thing was written and rewritten on the slick of that, uh, that came out of the, uh, the 2012 Olympics. And the and just the joy of how welcoming and universal and colourful the UK could be. I mean, imagine. It's extraordinary to think we're only 10 years out from that now, isn't it? Alex, Pretty Patel hit back at the weekend uh, against the Archbishop and uh, uh, critics. She said critics of the scheme had no solutions to this problem. Is there a solution to the issue of channel migrants? Because more and more are crossing each year. It's not a problem that is going away. Uh, is is there a humane way of handling this? Yes, safe and legal routes and timely processing of their claims. All of these contortions are to do with the UK trying to evade its responsibilities under international law. Um, the alternative is not fucking doing that. If the international conventions and the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers are no longer fit for purpose, by all means, make that argument. Get together as an international community and craft something that works for everyone. But don't, you know, try to basically wriggle out of your international law obligations and then say, well, it's it's then it's very difficult. We're finding it very difficult to do it. You know, ultimately, the only long-term solution is to tackle the underlying reasons that create population movements, war, poverty, environmental damage. So we as a country can't sell arms, cut international aid, ignore our commitments uh, on the environment, and then complain that people are trying to move away from the hell that we create for them. There is no system that will stop that. There are no borders that will stop that. Theresa May, who's not known for being particularly soft on the issue of immigration, <laughs> intervened today, didn't she, in the Commons? Yeah. Um, um, it, it's an interesting intervention, like many interventions from um, conservative backbenchers who are against this. It was about its cost and efficacy. And I have to say... Um, Pritchard Patel was on a really, really difficult wicket on those issues because it looks like it's going to cost an enormous amount of money and not work. So it's just 
a, you know, a senior cabinet minister in a lot of trouble, having a last throw on the dice, like a sort of, like a teenager hasn't tidied their bedroom, and, you know, their ultimate solution is to go, I'm doing it, I'm doing it! <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, Boris Johnson has given us a full apology. He knows people have a right to expect better from him. <laughs> that said, he didn't realise that his parties were against the law. MPs are now going to vote on Thursday on whether Johnson should be referred to the Privileges Committee over whether he lied to the Commons about parties in Number 10. It's not a vote of no confidence, but some Tory MPs might be tempted to signal their unhappiness. Meanwhile, what did you think of Johnson's performance, shall we say, in the Commons today, Alex? So as we're recording, it's emerged that Mark Harper has written to Sir Graham Brady and uh, published his letter uh, of no confidence. That's quite significant because he he was a chief whip um, under Theresa May and he is someone of the government trusts quite a lot. I mean, they were putting him up for the media round like four five weeks ago around the spring statement um, and he's published a pretty scathing letter saying you know integrity is what you do when no one is looking I'm sorry to say that you no longer are worthy of the great office you hold um, so it's not it doesn't mince his words um, yeah it was a bad bad performance for um, Johnson, he tried to do sort of 30 seconds of the apology and then go on to how terrific he is leading the world in, on on Ukraine and uh, doing all the stuff that he's not doing on, on uh, um, uh, the cost of living, but it just didn't wash. And Keir Starmer, I think, came back with the best speech I've heard him give since he became... Labour leader two years ago, he absolutely made mincemeat of, meat of him. It was embarrassing to watch, actually. I hear. What did you think of Starmer? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm much agreed on the uh, speech, and I would recommend to any listeners who haven't uh, watched it already uh, to to do so. Uh, Starmer, I think we we know that he doesn't do sort of relaxed particularly well or funny particularly well or what have you, but uh, like. It, it very much played to the strengths of the things that he mm. actually can do. And, I mean, he's in a situation where he's opposite someone who is entirely banged away. So, like, it, it's nothing that he was saying wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think, is what made it uh, all the more... And, like, you know, and makes it all the more ridiculous when he still gets pulled up on, and could you please withdraw the word dishonest because it's not parliamentary language. It's like, I kind of vaguely understand why that convention exists, but come on. Yeah, the speaker uh, said he had to, uh, speaker said he should work around it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I think also it comes from an authentic place for him, which always mm. helps. Mm. I think he's genuinely, genuinely a by the rules 
person. Mm. So I, it seems to me that someone behaving like Johnson behaves is a genuine yeah. affront to his sensitivity. So it comes from a really real, real and deep place for him. Yeah. A huge part of the sort of sadness that uh, a lot of people, well, I'm saying this is, this is certainly the way that I felt, and I think that a lot of people felt uh, when the sheer extent of everything that had been happening in number 10 throughout uh, the period where we were being instructed mm. under very harsh sanction to behave a certain way is that we were, I, I sort of felt like I'd been made to feel a mug uh, and no one likes being made to feel yeah. like these mm. people were living it up and laughing at them. Yeah. And that's exactly like, oh yes, of course you little people thought that it was for you. But yeah, I can genuinely imagine a lot of MPs being genuinely quite shocked when they found out that what you were just like every night you were all getting smashed <laughs> and like hanging. I out don't have that many like parties it. in a normal year, <laughs> let alone <laughs> let alone during lockdown. This is upsetting. Starmer had a very good line about taking on this defence, if I can call it that, that Johnson supporters are using about the speeding ticket analogy, <laughs> which they say you know, it's like a speeding ticket. And not that it's not very serious and much more serious, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's like a speeding ticket. And he pointed out that he'd actually prosecuted uh, Chris Hume, the uh, Lib Dem politician, for a speeding ticket in the past. Does it cut through with people, though, this, this particular defence? I think the speeding ticket... Look, I've already heard the speeding ticket defence in the wild uh, <laughs> once, but admittedly, I heard it from someone who the only thing that he likes more than Boris Johnson is teasing me about how much I hate Boris Johnson. I thought you were going uh, to say speeding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and like, uh, of course, like it, the, the speeding ticket thing doesn't stand up to a moment's scrutiny because it's not like you know I received a speeding ticket uh, once when I was going slightly above because I was driving my uh, wife who's in labour to the hospital yeah, or something yeah. and it's slightly different to no no every night I go out to see how quick I can go in my new Lambo because <laughs> that's a, and you know, sometimes it's not enough to do it at night I'll just do it at 320 outside the school actually that's, uh, that's something that I'm into uh, as well and uh, by the way oh no one else is allowed in a car because it would uh, impede the, any sort of traffic would impede and my I'm ability and drunk yeah, and, and, and I'm smashed and I'm smashed the child swings out of commission <laughs> let's get the foot down on the accelerator guys <laughs> but Starmer was very good on that today wasn't he he demolished that with the with the flip of it which is that no one came to me in tears because they weren't allowed to do 28 in a 20 or whatever it was he said um, so he actually turned that into a serious issue which was very clever of him I thought and I've never seen him more pissed off and I think he should embrace his anger more in parliament um, I, I do worry about the language though because things like the speeding penalty and ambushed with cake and, and even even the word party gate right it's not about the parties it's about the lies that's the thing but and ligate unfortunately doesn't scan very well and it also sounds like some shit bit of software from the 90s but above all it, the, the thing is that all this stuff drags the story away from the context and the context is and starmer got this right today the degree of sacrifice being made of people, it was absolutely skyscraping. You know, there were those adverts that said, if one person breaks the rules, we all suffer. Well, by by Johnson's own argument, he was breaking the rules there by causing everyone to suffer. The prime minister was causing everyone to suffer. And in fairness, we have suffered. So, yes. Yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, the, the point is that if you look at the, the uh, all the research done 
on compliance with the rules at the time, it was always much higher than even the models yeah. had had expected. Yeah. And if you if you flip that and say if everyone had behaved like Downing Street had behaved, we're talking about fifty thousand more dead. That's what we're talking about yes. effectively. Um, you know, we're talking about a lot of people dying. I mean, when you put it like that, it is quite bad, isn't it? It is quite. It is quite <laughs> a lot worse than a parking ticket, yeah. isn't it? Jason Johnson supporters hope though, that each time he gets fined, and we are expecting two or three, maybe more, even uh, fines for other events that he attended without realising they were parties, that we will get a bit more des- desensitised to the fact he broke the law. That's the hope. Do you think it will work like that? Well, they're such a dreamers, aren't they, Johnson supporters? <laughs> um, I mean, Edward Lee is so full of dreams that he's turning purple. I think there are two ways that this plays out, uh, and it's not an either-or. Basically, we're sort of currently in an abusive relationship with our government, right? Johnson said today that he feels an an even greater sense of obligation to deliver on the priorities of the British people. I think that's what he said, having been found guilty. This is nonsense. This is like saying, yeah, but he always tells me he loves me afterwards or something. So these, these these repeated abuses, right? He lies, he lies, he lies. They obviously cause some people to sort of dissociate and, and go numb and get desensitized to it. But, and possibly at the same time, the other thing is that this stuff piles up and piles up. And assuming there are more fixed penalty notices, Johnson starts to look like the archbishop of bullshit, basically. And that gets people pissed off when they just see they're being lied to repeatedly. Um, A Labour canvasser told me today, they've been going around for the local elections, doorstepping, And they've said, we've had so few conversations about council tax, which is the usual thing, but we've had lots of conversations about giving Johnson a kicking. So this stuff is seeping in, you know. It's like Mother Shipton's well. The water drips down and drips down and drips down. And after a certain amount of time, something is calcified there. And I think that's what's going to happen with with Johnson. Well, the war in Ukraine seems to have given him, or he believes it's given him, a new lease of life. What does it mean, though, for a PM to hang his reputation on a war in which Britain will not? arguably cannot play a major role has he gone as far has he taken this as far as he can with ukraine because now that russia as well is attacking on the in the east and it could this could go on for a long time is is it really a strategy that's going to work for him i can't see that it can i mean it's just the kind of squalid thing you'd expect him to do to be honest we know who he is he's an opportunist he does not take things seriously no one's going to fall for this you know that he's some kind of war hero here. It's just bullshit. And especially next to Zelensky, who's powerful and steadfast and passionate. And in his in his fatigues, he looks like a wartime leader. He looks like the kind of leader who would actually go and be at the front with the troops. Whereas our prime minister just looks like something tied to the radiator of a bin lorry. You know, I mean, he's just not, he's not a serious human being. He's not a serious leader. And I don't think he can suddenly dine out on just coupling himself up to a war which he's on the right side of, coincidentally. I think that Boris Johnson does look like a wartime leader, but it's the wartime in a children's film and we're at war with some <laughs> naughty elves. Ahir, <laughs> do you think he gets away with it because he's Johnson? Are we still enthralled him? Or is it because there is there has been a palpable shift in the standards we expect from politicians. You could see Starmer trying to drag it back today and saying, you know, the British people want yeah. to get back to uh, a, a government that has values. 
have we switched or is this just exceptionalism? We will only put up with it from Johnson. Maybe we need to go a step back because in stating that he does get away with this stuff in the first place, I'm not actually sure that that's really true unless we're defining it as he gets away with it in the sense that, yes, he woke up this morning as prime minister and will go to bed this evening as prime minister. And that continues for a while. You know, but that's not like some sort of like grand cackling victory after you've vanquished all of your foes and uh, named world king or whatever uh, he would quite like to be. You know, we are going to have an uh, elections very soon across the nation where I think that he's going to get a massive electoral kicking. His entire governing project, despite a gigantic majority that has not been seen in a very long time, seems to be trapped entirely in amber and mm. unable to enact anything. So it's like, I, I would I would just query, to, when we say that is he, he keeps getting away with this or like, to what end, to do what? To just, to carry on being called Mr. Prime Minister? Tomorrow, then yes, maybe he does get away with it for a little bit longer because more Tory backbenchers are entirely spineless than aren't. But I don't think that he gets away with it in the sense that, you know, it's not like 95% of the country are still like, oh, Bozza, what a top bloke. And we're all shouting into the ether. This is yeah. a spectacularly unpopular man who's I mean, about I, to get an electoral drubbing. I, it's I, guess, I guess the point is that when the only other option is complete defeat then deferral feels like victory. Mm. You know, like living to fight another day feels like a massive achievement. But you're yeah. right. I, I mean, he's, he's <laughs> I think... a dead man. I, can't, I genuinely cannot see him going back to the country and asking for its vote, publishing a manifesto, making promises. You know, the point you were making, Jason, about, you know, being in an abusive relationship. St- Stephen... Baker of the ERG um, fame um, just asked him in Parliament, will you please promise me nothing like this will ever happen again? What? And Johnson didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And Johnson actually wriggled wriggled out of it. And it's like, that is is an abusive relationship, isn't it? That is the partner going, oh, you will change, won't you? This won't happen again. Does that mean that Johnson is in an abusive relationship with himself? In which case, should we be pitying him in some way? Someone said that, believe it or not. A Tory MP stood up and and said that the country should show more compassion to the PM because he's having a very difficult time. Oh, fuck off. Seriously, <laughs> seriously uh, Edward Lee, I think it was, the one that of goes purple. Of course it was. Yes, the uh, beetroot, yeah. Just yeah. As, uh, as certainly my final word on this topic, uh, Alex, the phrase, when the only alternative is total defeat, deferral feels like a victory, <laughs> is what I will think every time I see an out-of-order sign on a train toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you're taking it all in good humour here. I, I thought the reference to uh, uh, gigs with just one person in the audience that refuses to join in would have dampened your spirits. But, <laughs> but nothing of the sort. <laughs> Alex, what does, your, what does your spider sense tell you about the May elections? Do you think the voters are going to give the Tories a kicking? 
I'm not sure, you know. I I think I think there are stages to this reaction and I think a lot of people will move to they're all as bad as each other and it will be a very low turnout mm. actually before moving over to giving him a kicking. I mean, I'm I might be wrong. Uh, it's also very easy to spin as there weren't many seats up for re-election. The government always does badly on midterms, that kind of thing. I think it's the Wakefield by-election that will become the lightning rod, to be honest, because that is a proper red wall, Tory Labour marginal. And if they get a really bad kicking there, then uh, Tory MPs like Steve Baker, who under current polling is projected to lose his seat with an 8% swing, um, will start well, to news. rethink. Yeah, it's a cheery thought, isn't it, Jason? And as in North Shropshire as well, in Wakefield, the Tory has disgraced himself. So there's that element as well. Yeah, absolutely. Desire to punish them. Well, they all disgrace themselves, don't they, by... by going out and peddling these defences at the moment. Well, you know, the, the the ostensible reason why backbench Tories who are fed up with Johnson aren't acting yet is because they don't have anyone, any realistic alternative contender now that Sunak has, is also out of the running. And, and there was an interesting focus group, more in common out today. To, uh, they talked to voters in Woking mm. who were fed up with Johnson and they were, you know, disapproving about Partygate, but they asked who else is there. Is that... Is that going to be the big problem for disaffected Tories or do you think they will start to coalesce around someone in the coming weeks ready for the post, post any post-election fallout? I don't know, you know. I think, I mean, someone always emerges in these leadership contests, don't they? Um, the, often it's not the person around whom people coalesce. You know, everyone thought that if I remember correctly, that Portillo was going to be the the sort of heir apparent to Thatcher, mm. uh, and and he got nowhere. So I, I think when it comes to these matters, matters of ethics, you have to have a red line, and the the Tory MPs simply have to discover where theirs is. For Pete's sake, is it one fine? Is it three fines? Is it organising an actual <laughs> party? Is it, you know, is it going to a, a COVID ward and snorting coke off a patient? What is the red fucking line? And if they that find wouldn't be a red line, it, yeah, <laughs> that would be a white line. Thank you. And if they find that line, then they have to decide when he's crossed it, and worry about who comes after. After. When bills are rising and inflation is up, people start looking for ways to save money. And according to the market research firm Kantar, one of the things they're cutting back on is streaming services like Now TV and Disney+. Plus. Netflix and Amazon Prime didn't do quite so badly. People tend to stick with them. But have we got tired of binging and streaming? Jason, do you have any streaming subscriptions? Yeah, I've got the usual suspects, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Apple and things. Um, and I... Obviously, being um, a, a, a person of a certain age, I subscribe to Disney Plus in order to get the Beatles get back, which is <laughs> arguably the greatest eight hours of TV ever made um, and only two hours shorter than the entire recording sessions for the Beatles' first album. Um, so I think I'm a sort of fairly kind of standard streaming candidate, really. 
Are you watching less now that all the lockdown restrictions have been lifted and we can actually go out and you know, see people? Well, the problem is I was never allowed to watch much while I was locked down because there are other people. All, there's, there's three people in this house who are ahead of me in the queue. So, um, so I tend to walk into the room when things are sort of already underway, and I end up being the who's that guy, you know? So who's this? What's going on there? This, like, I mean, walk into Severance a few episodes in and you are fucking through a trap door. You've got no idea what's going on at all. Yeah, I am fed up with walking in, you know, some dinosaur is trashing a town in America. <laughs> that, or, I mean, that's you know. how that's how my mum reacts to television programmes that she has put on and has been there from the beginning. And who's that one? You suggested we watch this. <laughs> It's great. It's a, it's a perfect analogue for the experience of waking up on the sofa, having fallen asleep during something, and going, what's going on? Who's this? What's that? <laughs> uh, here, do you watch a lot of comedy on streaming services? You know, your your, riv- your competitors, your rivals, your friends. Where, uh, you're, <laughs> yeah. of course, on HBO Max yourself, though. I understand, is that right, not in Britain? That is, no, uh, HBO Max is a streaming service that is not currently available in this country, and I have a stand-up special on it, and I also have a girlfriend but she goes to a different school and you wouldn't know her. <laughs> Irish Art Dots on HBO Max if you're in America or do VPNs or weird stuff, uh, then uh, it exists. Uh, I think... Um, I think that streaming services have been a very good thing for comedy in general, which sort of makes sense, right? Like, compared to making an hour of content through filming a uh, film or uh, doing an episode of a TV show, there are fewer moving parts. Uh, it's just a lot easier to do. You could make it all in a day doing two shows in a theatre. And if anything, it's uh, we, we've become the victims of our own success in that stage. Like, people have become so oversaturated uh, by the amount of stand up that they can get on streaming services that they're probably, well, I'm never going to get through all of this, uh, conceivably. So maybe we do need to pull back slightly. Is it a good medium for comics? Bo Burnham's latest work on, on Netflix is actually, it's not something that could be done on a stage. As people, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, there's not a lot of Netflix comedy that is comics on a stage doing a traditional performance, but are they starting to be more creative about it and do different stuff? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, but I think sort of my, my favourite thing to watch uh, as well as perform has always just been sort of just stand up and a person on a microphone on a stage telling me whatever they're going to uh, tell me and the fact that we can now access shows from people in countries we haven't been able to go to or uh, 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 performed years and years ago uh, or that we thought we'd never get a chance to see and now are able to is a really, really wonderful thing, I think. So I think it is a good, uh, certainly a good thing for comics and a good thing for the industry. And really, the only thing lacking is uh, that there is only currently one Ahirshah stand-up special available (laughs) uh, on the internet. And so anyone from a streaming service that ideally exists in this country, uh, ideally, listen, I'll take BritBox if I have to, guys. I'll... (laughs) it would just cost them a fortune to CGI the audience. <laughs> oh, that that is cool. I was I was at the recording actually of our here Shah's show on died. HBO Max. We both were. And and lo- yes, it was not a full house, but that was because, <laughs> because of COVID. Of COVID <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they <laughs> 
But uh, is there a service that you know you would you would keep streaming here, or you know have we already started cutting back in cost of living and all the rest of it? Well, I've I've certainly had a look at it because you just think when you're reading headlines about uh, sort of inflation at seven million and uh, what have you, and then you look at. Uh, these direct debits that go out all the time. And I realise that for as, as far as I'm aware, I have a Now TV subscription that is used exclusively by my mother to re-watch documentaries about murders that she knows occurred uh, <laughs> at, at some point in uh, history. That's and I'm amazing. Like, we, uh, you've solved this one, surely. Can we... Uh, yeah, and so uh, I think I think that the one that uh, that I keep returning to uh, is the one that is well. I mean, I suppose you have to pay the television license, but is iPlayer? That's yeah. the one that I uh, sort of keep using, and the one that, as I've been thinking, ah, oh, do I need all of these different things? I thought, ah, oh, that is the that is the one that I find myself using yeah. almost every day. Well, that's lucky because you have to pay for that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Alex, uh, thinking about Netflix, I mean, it divides opinion. You know, our friend Ian Dunt, uh, I believe, has struggles to find much on Netflix. Do you struggle to find things on Netflix that you want to watch? No, um, I find loads of stuff on Netflix. And as a matter of fact, I was. Um, waxing lyrical the other day about how Netflix has opened non-Anglosphere things, a whole universe of sort of, you know, um, Brazilian sci-fi and Korean drama. And I, I think it's I think it's blooming wonderful. But what I do do is I alternate my streaming services. So I will do like six months on on Netflix and then go off Netflix for six months and do six months on Apple TV, because I find that if I'm constantly on one service, then I do begin scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> well, if I return to it six months later, there's loads of new stuff that I fancy watching. The one that's been a real surprise to me is Disney+. Plus. It's the one that I w- wouldn't have thought uh, I would get much value out of. And I actually watch it more than anything, with the exception of BBC iPlayer, I think. Just because all the Marvel stuff, the Walking Dead stuff, the um, they've got a deal with stars, so they've got quite a lot of sort of solid 80s, 90s films on there. And I like the, the animations that they put out. And they have things like the Golden Girls, which I love re-watching, <laughs> especially if I'm feeling a bit poorly. But I get a lot of value out of out of Disney Plus um, that I wouldn't have expected. What about, uh, what about All Four? Because that has a lot of um, foreign drama as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I watch a lot of uh, uh, 4OD or whatever it's called. My partner paid for the subscription for it so that we get it without ads. Um, and annoyingly, we still get it with ads because um, most of the time they, a voice comes on and goes, for contractual reasons... Um, we still have to show you ads. So then they show you ads of other Channel 4 programs <laughs> and you think, what contractual reason? What contractual reason compels you to interrupt <laughs> Frasier and and tell me to watch Four in a Bed? I feel I'm being <laughs> fucked here. 
So we let that one go. I, I really enjoy the ads. I know it's sad, but it's like a, it's like a flashback to my youth when you know you were watching ITV or Channel Four, and there were ads, and there was nothing you could do about it. Well, and there's I, a I new that. there's a new kid in town. IMDb TV is available through Amazon. And it's completely free, but they do ads in the middle. The ads are very, very quick. I think the ads are changing as well. I think they're really fast mm. now. Um, and so IMDb TV have various film zones completely free to everyone. And they do have a, a whole new series of Judge Judy, which is my guilty pleasure. <laughs> Only it's called Judy Justice now. Uh, I, I have an ex-boss who, who uh, my, my leaving, do not do even, leaving, gathering round the desk, said, and it was, did you really remind everyone of Judge Judy? And I've never forgotten what? that. What? It was, it was horrific, anyway. How? I know, I know, because I'm not that kind of person, but evidently... In any way. Uh, <laughs> I just liked, Roz, when you were like, at my leaving do, well, not even a do, really, it was gathering around desks, and I expected you to say, and it was only for nine minutes, actually, and I expected... And I didn't realise it was a leaving <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it wasn't. It wasn't that recent. Um, but I, I'm not going to name the person involved. Uh, I would like to, but I won't. Now, is it um, now Home Secretary or something, Rosa? <laughs> you might have heard her name, but she's not Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> thank God. Uh, <laughs> um, I have never worked for the Home Office. That's surprising to know. Jason, there's a bit of a. I sometimes find myself streaming something, and then I carry on watching it, and it's just absolute trash and I'm still watching it and I, I despise myself afterwards for watching it <laughs> and yet do you ever have that thing where you, you, you start, you regret streaming something but you just get hooked by it why, why do you do this to yourself, Ros? This is a terrible way to be. Because you want to see how things turn out. Well, I think you see excuse because as, as Alex says, it's great. There's a lot of French drama and I use it as a kind of, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to improve my French or my Spanish. Now I'm learning Spanish and I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to turn the subtitles off. Uh, and that's even worse, of course, because you just, uh, uh, and, and that's, that's how I get into it. And I watch the most utter trash. There was a kind of, um, there was something called MILF that is in French on Netflix, which is, you know, what you would expect entirely. It's uh -huh. terrible. And I despise myself for watching it, but I did. But you don't, Jason. You don't have... I presume you have higher standards. No, I was just I was just trying to translate MILF into French and wondering what the abbreviation would be, and it got so long that I'd st I stopped trying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like MJV. MQJ. No, I have... I've not, I, I've not done that. I mean, Parche, um, having looked at the Jimmy Savile thing recently, which is which is hard to watch and hard to turn away from. It's that terrible seasick moment between those two things. Um, I haven't really had that. I do have a sort of inside out regret though, about this notion that people aren't sign uh, are starting to scale back on their streaming services, which is that if they start to have less money to spend, what are we going to miss? Because it occurs to me that as, as one of the early things I watched in the first lockdown, Tiger King, that surely there, there might be, there must be another impossibly alarming weirdo out there. Like, there's got to be another one of there out uh, of him out there. And if the streamers lose money and they can't afford to hang around for two years making a film about someone like that, we won't get to see it. And it's heartbreaking, really, for me to think that that, that Joe Exotics is the worst hairstyle I'll ever see on television. <laughs> <laughs> Have you written for streaming services? I've written a bit for Netflix, yeah. And is it what's it like? I mean, do you have to really make those cliffhangers cliffhangy? Is it more difficult? 
Well, I haven't written drama for them, but the but the nice but the nice thing about what what is happening, Jesse Armstrong, who's uh, who's in charge of Succession, um, he's got the advantage. Anybody who does drama for streamers has got the advantage that they can pick up on what the box sets did, which was like you can now do stories where there are long stories and short stories, and they're all under the same umbrella. So that you've got a kind of you've got TV which is kind of polyrhythmic because there are things that last no time at all and there are things that are enormous and can last whole seasons. There a few years ago I went to a, a, an exhibit at MoMi in New York, which they had a Mad Men exhibit there, and under a under a big um, perspex uh, thing on a table there were lots and lots of pages of Matthew Weiner's notes. Uh, for, for I think it was season five or season six, and there were like twelve pages, twelve full scat pages he'd written about Don Draper, about what happens to him. And by comparison, there was the character Pete. I don't know if you remember him; he's a little snake. Pete got two sentences at the bottom of one piece of paper that said, um, "Pete starts nailing secretaries and eventually gets caught. He is now that guy." And that was his entire series arc over like 12 hours of TV. And it's wonderful that those two things can coexist. What streaming has done is taken the box set thing and said, and now it doesn't matter how long your episodes are. So your episodes don't have to be a broadcast hour, as it's called, which is about 43 and a half minutes. They can be as long or as short as you like, which is where you get something like, as previously referred to, the Beatles Get Back thing, where the episodes are of no common length whatsoever. They're just as long as it needs to tell the story. And a good example of that was um, Chernobyl, which was meant to be six episodes, but the writer said, no, I can do it in five. I don't need six. Just give me five. It's fine. If I have six, it'll outstay its welcome. What a cracking thing that was. Yeah, absolutely, wasn't it? Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's Escape Roots, what you've been up to in the past week to distract you from the horror show that is British politics. Alex, what's your Escape Route? So um, I want to recommend Raw on Apple TV. I think it's wonderful. It's a series of sort of feminist, absurdist um, fairy tales. Uh, We reviewed it recently in the Culture Bunker and disagreed vehemently about it. I was right. They were wrong. Um, (laughs) Is it like Angela Carter? It's like... um, um, I'll tell you what it is. It's like a feminist black mirror. So each episode has a simple, absurd hook. So there are episodes like The Woman Who Lived on the Shelf, who is actually about a woman who gets married to this rich guy who builds a massive mantelpiece for her where she lives so he can look at her while he works. And little by little, he loses interest and starts to turn his desk the other way and she feels neglected. And they're they're kind of wonderful Um and, uh, of course, my roof garden is beginning to wake up. All the little 
seedlings are beginning to pop their heads up and say there's been much uh, planting and potting and repotting and weeding and and general joy. I think uh, growing things is my mental health rescue remedy, so I highly recommend it. I hear. What about you? So uh, my shout-out is going to be for uh, Gordon Ramsay's Future Food Stars, <laughs> which, my God, it's excellent. <laughs> so basically, I, I think that I've discovered that one of my favourite genres of programming is people competing for investments in their small business by doing challenges that have absolutely nothing to do with the running of a small business. Uh, and it's just like, you know, as, as someone uh, who, in effect, does run a small business just of uh, selling a weird thing, yeah. right? What you basically need to do is, like, creativity in a limited sector that is quite rigidly uh, defined and then financial admin... Uh, and basically, what you don't need to be able to do is uh, go on a zip wire in order to serve a meal know, to someone <laughs> in the middle of a mountain rescue. And yet, it is the most entertaining thing that you could possibly. If you haven't read that delicious review of it in the Irish Times, I think it was. Oh, I've not. I highly recommend it. It's one of the funniest pieces of writing I've ever read. In fact, I will I will make sure the production team drop the link in the show notes. <laughs> Jason, what about you? What have you been doing? Well, I'm going to be the happy sower to Alex's happy reaper. I get very attached to whatever seasonal foods are coming out around this time of year because for, for the last few weeks it's been wild garlic and I've been making absolute stack loads of wild garlic pesto and now the asparagus mm, started to arrive and so I'm now looking forward to all the asparagus meals. The other thing I've started doing is I started um, re-watching a bit of Fry and Laurie which is a sketch series from the late 80s early 90s which remains astonishingly prescient and one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen. And I've been I've just been dissolving in that in the last week and just laughing myself silly on a regular basis. I hear you a Fry and Laurie fan. I'm a Fry and Laurie fan, yes. So you've been watching a bit of a bit of Fry and Laurie, right? <laughs> How about you, Rose? Uh, I went on the holiday, which was very nice. I went to the Peak District, one of my favourite parts of the world, and I went on a steam train. It was the first time I've been on a steam train That's since lockdown. Really? Yeah, yeah, it was The last great. bit of coal, apparently. They're all going to have to... Um, because it was all coming from Ukraine. I know, it's very uh, worrying. Or Russia, and, you know, the coal that those little locomotives use. Oh. So uh, they're having big problem this summer. So yeah, they'll, they'll just be in the sidings now, will they, for the summer? Well, or, or they'll make you get out and push. Yeah, it, 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 it was yeah, Welcome to global Britain. <laughs> there was... There was there was shunting and, you know, at one point they let off steam and then it did this great sort of parping, hooting kind of thing. And, oh, it was lovely. Oh. Lovely, beautiful Can we, steam. There must be another way of producing steam. Could we Could we drop Edward Lee in some cold water? That might do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Alex Andreu. Thank you. To Ahir Shah. Thank you. And to our special guest, Jason Hazley. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, then you can help us keep doing it by supporting us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout-out at the end of the podcast, and here are some now. Best wishes for me to Rich Riddell, San Pellibrino, John Campbell. 
Uh, so big thanks from me to Matt D, Rory Hipkin and John. And best wishes from me to Yvonne Hewitt, Guy C and Chris Mitchell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Alex Andreu and Ahir Shah. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. Get well soon. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>